No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome once again to Media and the End of the World. Ralph, how you doing? I'm great. I've looked over the edge, <laughs> and uh, I know where we're headed. Good deal. It, yeah. In the uh, speaking of where we're headed, the second half of this podcast, we are going to be. You're going to be actually talking to L. Schneider. Yes. Yeah, this, I had a we had an opportunity to have Elle in uh, to talk about her work. She's worked in uh, narrative fiction filmmaking. She's worked in documentary, and she's uh, made uh, music videos. Um, there are a couple of them by a band called Speedy Ortiz that are pretty phenomenal. Particularly if you're either a David Lynch fan or uh, have a soft spot on your head for wanting to really hate fish-headed men. I'll just put it at that as kind of a way. So maybe after you listen to the podcast, then you can go find these videos and and, uh, take a look at her work. But we had not, she was, uh, she's a uh, camera person, as you'll hear, and talks pretty extensively about her involvement with the creation and development of the digital Bolex, uh, which was, uh, again, if you get a chance, look up the digital Bolex online, you'll see this digital camera that looks like it's actually probably supposed to shoot eight millimeter film because that was kind of the aesthetic they were going after. And uh, also she has a fascination for industrial films, which are a favorite of mine. Hmm. So yeah, it's a, it's a good, good conversation. Well, very interesting. Well, before we get to that, we have a few news items to uh, to which we can discuss. After weeks of speculation, growing public anger, and questions over the future of online digital privacy, the 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 wrestling match we've all been waiting for finally happened uh, on uh, on Tuesday. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg uh, went tested. up against John Cena, <laughs> yes, and was torn limb from limb, <laughs> as expected. <laughs> uh, he uh, he he testified on on uh, which which came to be based off of uh, the data of at least eighty seven million users and how it was improperly shared with data crunching firm. Cambridge Analytica. Did you get to watch any of the testing? You know, no, but Cambridge is definitely my favorite Analytica. Mm. I, I've looked at the others, and, and <laughs> Cambridge was definitely my favorite of the Analyticas. So, but no, I didn't get a chance to watch any of it. Uh, you did? Did you? Did I you? watched a little bit of it. Yeah, um, they happened a lot of it during the classes that I teach, but I did get to watch it. And I tweeted that um, surprisingly, I came across the live video of the testimony on Facebook. So here I was on the platform that Mike Mark Zuckerberg had built, um, <laughs> watching him testify about the platform that he had built. And, and it was circulated before the testimony. Some of the, uh, some of the remarks in which he had prepared before I'm going to read one that, uh, was in most articles, uh, that were written. It says, uh, it's clear now that we don't, we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. That goes for fake news, foreign interference in elections and hate speech, as well as developers and data privacy. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. It was my mistake, and I'm sorry. I started Facebook, I run it, and I'm responsible for what happens here. Mm-hmm. And he had a tie-on. 
He did have a tie. He Which was, was yeah. He, I don't know if you also saw this picture, but he was also sitting on a seat cushion. I did see that. Yeah, did you see that? <laughs> so they had him sitting, sitting nice and yeah. upright. And he, and he was, he was a. Um, if you watch it, he was very polite, very cordial, almost uh, robotic in a sense. You know, everything was, you know, senator. I believe this, or I don't believe that. Did he ever utter the words "Make the world a better place"? <laughs> That's no, I actually was looking at an Axios summary of it and, and their take was that, which I think is interesting because even in the small clips that I saw, there was this interesting kind of contrast. It's kind of interesting to listen to people who don't do social media talk about social media because sure. they say things like tubes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I believe uh, yeah, a question that's been circulating a lot was from Senator Hatch. He says, well, how do you, how do you sustain a business model that in which users don't pay for your service? And if you watch, watch it because. Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> blankly stares at him and goes, Senator, we run ads and then <laughs> smiles like, the, you know, um, and, and, and he and, and Hatch is like, oh, well, that, that's great. You know, uh, which uh, I don't I don't mean to demean uh, the digital literacy of our elected officials. You know, I don't, I don't know if we've done the, as much as we should to to make people all you know informed about what's happening within these. Um, but I do want to say yeah, the bar was pretty low. Um, so, <laughs> Well, Axios says the majority of the 44 or 44 lawmakers questioning Zuckerberg in the joint Senate hearing were not well versed in the workings of Facebook or how data is shared between platforms, developers, and advertisers. The questions generally focused on what Facebook was capable of doing, allowing Zuckerberg to stay in a safe zone of providing the basics. Yeah. And their question was what we didn't learn exactly what kind of privacy regulation is Facebook open to, which I think is a actually a really good question. How because this is still this is still the issue that's not been determined. And so then it becomes a question of, do the people doing the questioning know enough about the social media platforms to understand what this means? And then related to that kind of in a media literacy kind of way, do people using Facebook or any other social media thing uh, have a conception of their own of, of the meaningfulness of privacy? Right. And um, and this might have been an Axios take that I was reading this morning, too. I'm not exactly sure where I got this information, but I thought it I, I thought it was interesting in which they were saying that they believe that actually what we'll likely see is the Republicans um, continue to press on Facebook, not necessarily because of privacy, but because of censorship issues. Um, and Fox News was running a clip of, of Senator Tom, uh, uh, Senator Ted Cruz, who uh, you know was asking about uh, a lot of different sites that had been censored, whether it was um, uh, politicians on the right or specific pages that have been taken down or different events that were taking place that, you know, they felt like um, uh, Facebook had, well, I think it's been reported that Facebook has uh, pulled some specific stories down from the trending news that were right leaning, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's interesting in that you, you you know, we came into it assuming that uh, Mark Zuckerberg is going to get at minimum, just a good talking to, right. Um, And uh, about, uh, about how, how could you let this happen? Uh, 87 million users, lots of data here. That's that, that's that's uh, that's a pretty large breach, and it's been used, um, you know, to have. <clears throat> I think we'd all agree some effect on a democratic election, um, and that's not necessarily the, the you know the, the way it went. Um, I believe uh, Feinstein's reactions afterwards was he's a very nice young man, you know, he's got <laughs> kind of a you know he's nice and young and he's got a lot of employees. He seems successful. Yeah, I think he should have shifted a little bit more into the Eddie Haskell version, <laughs> you know, because I think I actually do think that there is a, a kind of uh, sincerity that comes out. And if you can like just 
make that sincerity a yeah. little bit menacing. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a perfect yeah. formula. He, and and I, I, I think the, the G golly by gosh kind of did get him through this where I think he had won a lot of people over. And then if, you know, if you were looking at the stock prices of Facebook where they had dropped dramatically over the last week, and that was a combination of what we saw as stock prices across Silicon Valley with uh, the president making specific references towards Amazon and all the news about Facebook that, that a lot of Silicon Valley had lost its money. Well, now Facebook is, is like a net positive. Uh, Zuckerberg's net worth has actually gone up $3 billion <laughs> afterwards. Because I think everyone who was shareholders who maybe you know sold off went, oh, okay, uh, regulation's we're not done. exactly <laughs> the next thing that's coming. So you know we're happy to buy it back. Yeah, but, yeah. So. Yeah, no, I think it's it, it's interesting how how it kind of bounces back and forth into the the kind of the the sphere of um, partisan politics so easily, as if that's you know, and and you know, for somebody like Cambridge Analytica, although they were definitely working for one administration, you know, to a certain extent, inside of a system like that, they don't care really. You know, sure. it's like the, the the check doesn't go out of like the bank of leftist money or the bank; right. it comes out of the bank of money. <laughs> so yeah. as long as that part is working, um, that was kind of you know the 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 funny thing about the original dossier that's that's you know has kind of been bandied about was that it was uh, originally funded from a Democrat source and then it became funded from a conservative source and so it kind of went back and forth and it's just kind of an indication of you know they're all their their loyalties are to kind of the larger project to some extent yes and speaking of people who do care and have a specific agenda i did want to get your thoughts on uh an act that took place on a lot of local news stations um last month um on news stations across the u.s uh that were specifically owned by sinclair broadcast group uh we saw dozens of anchors give the same exact speech uh, it included a, a warning about fake news, a, a promise to report fairly and accurately, and a request that viewers go to the station's website and comment, quote, if you believe our coverage is unfair. And you've likely seen the the, the Deadspin video. So Deadspin put uh, compiled uh, several of these speeches into um, a, uh, a, a remixed version to where you can see everyone sort of giving the same exact speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is bizarre and creepy and, and, and sad in a lot of ways. Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to serve, serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we, we are concerned, concerned about trouble and trying to be responsible. One-sided news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. Yeah, well. there's there's a, a beautiful moment at the end of it where they do because uh, the end of the text that they're supposed to read uh, goes. Some members of the media use their platforms to push their own personal bias, and then the last line: "This is extremely dangerous to our democracy." This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 Uh, this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This then, is extremely right. dangerous to our democracy. Yeah. This is extremely dangerous. And so what happens is the word this 
stops becoming the thing that they were talking about in the previous text and becomes what they're doing, right? I mean, that's where it 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 it, it almost is like this, you know, kind of unflinching, ironic use of a platform to claim that the platform isn't doing exactly what it's doing. Sure. And so that and and that you know, I think that's an interesting challenge because it's all this through the mirror stuff that's happening now, where you get on the other side because the 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 owners of Sinclair are saying we don't have a conservative bias. What are you talking about? All those cops commentaries they're clearly labeled commentaries they of course don't mention in that same thought that the stations are forced to run that's those. right so, right right so there's like yeah. a disingenuousness tied <clears throat> exactly into um yeah anyone who's who's grown up watching local television you're used to it i growing up in oklahoma city uh you know saw very you know a lot of my two cents from kelly ogle you're used to that uh opinions side of the news that comes out and it's a very brief segment which you're not used to knowing uh, and i think the largest concern is that uh, these are now getting to the point where these are being written by the companies that own the local stations themselves mm-hmm. which this is an interesting story maybe, maybe we shouldn't jump here just yet but in contrast to uh the debate of amazon owning washington post and and how much influence jeff bezos has on on the washington post editorial staff in which uh you know th- th- this is this has happened because um as the president has uh claimed and as the facts have you know been in, in, incorrect at best, uh, saying that the that Amazon is losing the U.S. post office money. Um, that's not true. It's it's quite the opposite. That Amazon um, is basically propping up the post right, office exactly. because of the amount. Right. Of, yeah. Um, his anger with Amazon, you know, comes from the fact that Jeff Bezos owns Washington Post, which doesn't write. Uh, write about him always in the most positive light. Uh, <laughs> Could you understate that a little bit more? <laughs> I, try, I try try to you know to stay in the middle here. Yeah, I, um, well, I and I would argue from the middle that you know I, uh, any untarnished observer who isn't sort of in that other bubble that thinks that all of the media should be mistrusted would have to look at what the Washington Post has been doing with admiration because right. they're doing hard journalism. And by hard, I mean it's hard work to do what they're right. doing. And it's excellent writing and it's a really good sense for where stories are going. And I think also a very clear separation between the editorial side and the the op you know, the the, the opinion side. Yes. So. Yeah. And they're, I don't know if it's their editor or their publisher who, you know, who's all came out, but basically saying that, you know, Jeff, Jeff Bezos is, has never told us once to write about something or to not write about something, you know, and, and he, he really doesn't have uh, the same type of stranglehold over our uh, editorial pieces or, or what we're doing in the same way that Sinclair Broadcast Group really does on okay, these local so, news stations. That's, that's where I'm connecting right. this. Here's here's quiz time. Right. Okay, So you've just said that to a conspiracy theory person. Ooh. What's their response? Go for it. <laughs> no, I, I want to hear it. That's what they want you to think, <laughs> right? They're 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 actually being bought and paid for by Jeff Bezos to go out and tell them that, right? So it's interesting that the difference is that you see the alternative as something you can't trust on its face, and on the other hand, you've got people who are you know the the owners of Sinclair are blatantly lying about their political bias. It's just really clear what they're you know. It's not like their commentaries are a mishmash of positions that are all over sure. the map. Um, so it's it's very clear what what 
orientation they're bringing. And by the way, if there there is a uh, purchase that they're trying to make of the Tribune Group, which would uh, just greatly enhance right. them. Now, fortunately, they're running into a little bit of resistance from the Federal Communications Commission right now. It's a $3.9 billion acquisition of Tribune Media Company by Sinclair. Uh, it would actually, I think, add at least one and possibly two other stations. I'm not sure what the final count. I think it would be three altogether in, in the market we're in, the Oklahoma City market of stations that are owned by the same conglomerate if that goes through. Um, and, of course, that's one of those things that is, again, it's so boring, nobody likes to think or talk about it, this kind of mergers and acquisitions thing uh, in the media business. But it has a big influence on what stations do and don't do. It, you know, if you get must-runs, that's changing your editorial mm-hmm. policy. So. Yeah. So lots of interesting stuff that's happening uh, in the in, in the world of media right now. I think it's fair that we go ahead and or I think it's probably the, the right time for us to move into the interview. Anything else that we need to say before we uh, we hit the play button on this one? Nope. I think uh, I think it's time. All right. So we'd like to welcome Al Schneider. So, Al, thank you for joining us. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, um, is that is is do you think uh, how regularly do you think people get what cinematographers do? Just sort of like your regular Netflix consuming person on the street. Uh, I would assume that most laymen, if you were, um, lay, lay persons, lay folks, yes, lay lay humans, <laughs> lay humans, um, that most lay humans uh, just assume that it's the person holding the camera. Uh huh. And uh, I don't know how much people know about the intricacies of lighting or camera movement technology. Mm-hmm. And typically, you know, if I'm in a situation where someone doesn't know me and they're like, what do you do? I just say I'm a camera person uh-huh. because that seems to be more palatable to mm-hmm. most people than I'm a cinematographer. Uh, because I th- think that because it uses the word cinema in it, that people kind of don't know the difference between that and filmmaker and kind of confuse the two and think it's like a fancier term for a filmmaker. Filmmaker, yeah. yeah. I was recently telling my class there's only one person in the world who shoots film anymore, Christopher Nolan. And that's at <laughs> everybody else, which is not really true. But No, it's... Tarantino and mm-hmm. uh, PTA. Mm-hmm. You know, they have, the, I think, Scorsese most of the time. They have their little cabal yeah. keeping uh, yeah. Kodak afloat. Keeping some industry going. Yeah. Because like, we, we were talking about cameras because one of the things that, that you have managed to accomplish in your life was being a very fundamental person to the development of the uh, Bolex digital camera. Yeah. How weird is that? That is weird. So how did you end up doing that? Um. The short version is that I was working freelance as a director and DP uh, shooting fashion videos. And my roommate worked with a woman whose husband was developing a camera. And my roommate's like, oh, you should meet this guy. You know, it sounds really interesting. And I'm like, whatever. Like, who's creating their own camera? That sounds like bullshit. (laughs) And, uh, it took maybe six months and, uh, my roommate's colleague had a very distinctive tattoo. She had been a former librarian and she had, uh, Harry Potter's Dewey Decimals tattooed in the Harry Potter font on her back. So, wow, that's intense. Yeah, it's very intense. And, uh, I was at Comic-Con in 2011 
and uh, I saw her based, and I, I recognized her based on the tattoo. And I introduced myself, and that was sort of the excuse that we finally all had to, you know, get dinner. And uh, my roommate and her wife. And uh, this woman, Ella, and her husband, Joe, and I, there's five of us, all went out and had dinner. And it was very strange because uh, we were walking around in Old Town, Pasadena, and this guy ran up to Ella and was like, I'm a caricaturist. And she's like, oh, you know, sorry, not interested. He's like, no, I... That's not a good opening line. Well, you know, it, it's it's a highly walkable sort of uh, on the weekends, like hip touristy kind of place where people from the burbs show up to go to dinner. And so there's always, you know, someone selling a rose or doing a caricature or whatever. And this guy was like, no, I just thought you all looked like such an interesting group of people. I drew you. I don't want to give it to you. So... I have this sketch still uh-huh. of the night like all of us met for the first time and it was the first time that I met Joe and uh, he sort of uh, gave me the 20 questions that a lot of male filmmakers give women filmmakers when they want to see if they're sort of legit about their profession <laughs> or not. That's very kind. <laughs> uh, well, it, it, it's it's uh, it's sort of a shit test, mm-hmm. and I passed the shit test, I guess. And uh, so Joe got in touch and was like, you know, I looked at your work, and I really like your work. Do you want to come work with me on this project? And it ended up snowballing from there. Mm-hmm. So it was originally based on some of this fashion work that I had done, but as part of the fashion work, I was shooting it on a 7D, which I really liked, and I've shot a lot of projects on that camera. Um, But it is, you know, 8-bit, and it wasn't quite giving me what I wanted. And what I'd started doing was experimenting with taking the uh, files and converting them into TIFF image sequences and running them through Photoshop and certain sort of like proto-Instagram-y type of filmic uh, filters or there are sorts of these downloadable little programs that you could use and uh, I would then save that back into an MOV and it was because at the time you know I wasn't really able to get these sort of filmy looks that I wanted to out of After Effects there, I either wasn't familiar enough with plugins didn't have the computer to be able to handle it didn't have the money to buy stuff whatever reason I think it was just easier for me to say like design a, some actions in Photoshop and then just batch all of my footage through there and so when Joe t- started telling me about the camera he was developing um, and the fact that it shot raw image sequences I was like oh yeah Like, I completely already knew sort of where he was going with it. And so I think that was intriguing for him because for most people he explained that concept to of using raw image sequences as moving picture. People are like, "Uh, (laughs) not for me. I think, yeah, one of the things about the, the just the word Bolex for people of a certain age, I think you could put it, is that there was a particular uh, way of starting out being a filmmaker when you were a young person and it involved a Bolex camera that was a wind-up camera which meant you didn't need electricity or anything like that and and it was something that everybody has this sort of like love-hate relationship with because it was sort of like one of the first things you used to make media right and uh, and it was actually very tactily you know 
Like one of the, and I think that's a really big deal with cameras is right. Sort of the, what does it feel like? What does it make you feel like you're doing when you're working with it? Well, it sort of has both the eight millimeter and 16 millimeter Bolexes have a little bit of heft to them. Mm -hmm. And so they're like pretty steady while you're filming with them. And it, it gives you a sense of fun while also having a sense that it's uh, footage that can be treated seriously. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a it's a great project. I really like the idea of that. I like the idea that and and it's worth looking at if you haven't seen what the camera looks like. Look it up online, and it's just you'll see it and you'll go ah oh, because it's just got that kind of warm feeling to it, like something that we've kind of left behind curves we're in the we're in the kind of corner culture now not the curve culture yeah but five years ago like everyone considered this totally mm -hmm. standard so if anything wouldn't that put us behind the curve rather than ahead of it right you thought you were trying to be nostalgic and instead you were at the bleeding edge <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it i don't know how much it was an attempt to be nostalgic for me it was more for me a lot of it went into the form factor mm -hmm. more than the look in that I like cameras that allow for play and spontaneity because I think that's how a lot of people can, you know, hone their creativity. And the bigger the camera, the more cumbersome the setup, the more gear you need to use it properly. You're just going to be like, you know what? I'm not going to take this to my kid's birthday party or on that hike or to the beach or whatever. And you might miss out on some good creative opportunities. So do you think I, people who are just basically moving around with a cell phone camera or maybe even an iPod camera, are they are they in that spontaneous world or is it more uh, more arch than that? Um, um, I think they are. And I think that's sort of why you've seen some people like Sean Baker obviously tricking out iPhones. But there's something to the mobility of an iPhone, even when it's bogged down with a professional lens, mm -hmm. um, that just seems like you can try stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas you feel like a little bit of a slave to the camera sometimes when you have a bigger camera set up because you're like, oh, I just need to get this and get it done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my daughter, uh, when, and she'll hate that I'm mentioning this, but in that kind of resurgence of the Polaroid camera, yeah, like, you know, did her first set of pictures, and then she started messing with it. Like, how do you do double exposures with this? How can you mess with the way the technology is supposed to work so she could do some kind of interesting things with it? Yeah. And I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of nice because, of course, you know, kind of like flying in the face of what the technology is actually trying to make you do is a lesson that, you know, we all need to learn. Something that's kind of, I think, a, a good lesson now for social media that people need to realize that maybe what it wants you to do versus maybe what you want it to do aren't going to be the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay, so you are a documentary maker. You work in narrative production. I saw, uh, can we talk about the new video? Is that something we can talk about? Yeah. Or should we? Um, so tell us about this new, which I, I, I saw it today, some of it, and I cracked up. I thought it was very, uh, uh, just kind of moved me in kind of a very, like, interesting culture kind of way because of the story it was trying to tell. Yeah, so I just shot and directed a video for Speedy Ortiz's new album, Twerp Verse. The song's called Villain. Um, the video comes out April 11th, and I assume will just be on uh, the label Car Park's YouTube. That tends to be where those hang out. Um, but yeah, we did a, a mostly one-day shoot with two days of pickups, um, 
in a soundstage in Los Angeles, a very minimal crew uh, with a very simple concept. Uh, the song has a bit of a um, Me Too narrative as it's the uh, lead singer, Sadie, um, writing about sort of a, a harassment experience that she had. And so creating a video for that while still making it lighthearted, but not belittling the message, creative, but not, you know, commercializing a movement was an interesting um, task Mm -hmm. to have. Because most of the time with music videos, you're like, just create the coolest, craziest thing that you can. Um, Or you can go completely, completely in the other direction. And uh, I think it was Runaway Train, Tony K directed, where they kind of go for like, really hard hitting almost like um sarah mclaughlin like cute puppy (laughs) type of just making you feel bad for small children Mm -hmm. type of video but that's a very specific choice to make which i don't think would have you know i don't think this music video as a psa would have worked properly yeah it does actually one of the things i think it's a real strength of it is it kind of communicates because i think this is becoming really interesting kind of cultural differentiation now to sort of realize the the kind of like micro uh, you know micro abusive micro aggressions and that sort of thing because it's it's actually like really subtle about it but it's so insistent and so pervasive and that's one of the things that's i think been you know characteristic of some of these changes is sort of like addressing you know, just because they're small, it doesn't mean that cum- that they're that they're in and of themselves not extremely annoying and then cumulatively really problematic. Right. So. Yeah, I I, it, I think music videos are tricky because inherently they are a commercial branded product that is designed to draw attention to the band by using visuals, and so it's always a fine line that you're walking. In mm-hmm. any direction that you take it in. Yeah. So, what's your favorite music video ever? Oh, that's tricky. I have to think I, about are those that. Terrible for a questions. That's so unfair. Well, <laughs> be, the thing is that you know, for a certain generation, you know, I'm I'm sort of uh, late wave MTV generation. Mm-hmm. You know, you grow up and music videos are on TV, and you have like VH1 classics, so you can watch all sorts of old music videos. Also. Um, but a lot of the videos you tend to like or tend to reference tend to be things that are related to bands that you like. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily about, you know, perfection in the music video mm-hmm. as it is about, um, you know, what sort of sparks your imagination. You know, I think that uh, I always really liked Queen's Radio Gaga video, which sticks the band in the middle of Metropolis. Uh I thought that was very clever. Um, And I've always been a silent film fan. So anytime um, artists sort of collided with other art that I loved, Uh it, you know, synapses would fire off and connections in my brain would be made. Um, So I tend to prefer those kind of like referential uh-huh. videos to some degree, you know, and, and some of them are pulled off in a more like technically perfect way. Like Weezer had a happy days right. music video, which, you know, was just incredibly well done. 
Yeah, the, um, the other one that that uh, watching uh, the one that we were looking at earlier today it reminded me of the summer camp video. Um, trying to remember the name of the song now, but where she's basically, you know, which one I'm talking about, where it's kind of set in this phony California town. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, just, a lot of a lot of music videos because they have to sell a narrative if they're trying to be a uh-huh. narrative in such a short amount of time. There's like almost a pantomime aspect to them, where they get to be very camping over the top a lot of the time. Um, some of the ones that I like or that I tend to find myself revisiting are more simply executed music videos. For example, um, Green Day's film, uh, Green Day has two like one take music videos basically. Uh, when I Come Around, I think the whole thing is a one take, I haven't watched it in a little while, but it's basically just someone with looks like with a steady cam walking backwards mm-hmm. and the band is just walking towards them and there's like either a light mounted on the rig or there's like a PA holding a light and the band is just like walking around town. Mm-hmm. And it's just so simple, but you know, they're just centered in the shot and it's brilliantly executed. Yeah, there's a there's a deer tick video that does that kind of with a I think they reverse shot it but it's a basically a limousine and they do all of these like getting out and running around and getting back in but the whole song is just the one take yeah. played backwards yeah yeah Green Day has another song called Macy's Day Parade which does the one take but it's much more complicated and he's walking around some kind of like industrial yard and it's shot in like gorgeous black and white and uh, that one I look back at um a lot because it's very simple but like extremely effective and i think that music videos typically have been sort of a creative breeding ground you know for directors like michelle gondry for example Mm -hmm. where they're able to really try out um experimental editing or motion or cuts that wouldn't really make sense in like your normal narrative film, um, but can potentially lead to concepts that can be refined and used for narrative films. So how do you think about how the work you're doing gets to the audience it's intended for? Um, I've seen enough people sort of make the mistake of thinking that if you post it on the internet, they will come which is not accurate for the internet because there's just too much stuff on there that unless you're going to put some like highly controversial hashtags that are just going to get like random trawled uh, (laughs) hits, uh, it it doesn't make sense. You're not, you're not, you need to start planning who your audience is and how you're going to reach them before you even start making the project. Like that has to be essentially in the script and pitch phase of your project. Um, And, so the previous video that I shot for Speedy Ortiz had a strong David Lynch theme. Mm-hmm. And the the song sort of lent itself to kind of like a weird, mysterious video. And I was like, you know what? I've seen a ton of music videos that reference sort of the Twin Peaks aspect of David Lynch with the chevron floors and the red curtains. Mm-hmm. And... He's done a significant amount of musical stuff in his work, but no one has really referenced any of that other stuff. They just keep going back to this uh, Black Lodge iconography. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what if we sort of did an interpretation of his different musical styles? Mm-hmm. What would that look like? And 
you know, Twin Peaks is obviously very hip, and they did have the remake that, uh, not the remake, the sequel that was coming out on Showtime. And uh, just in general, he's become a very hip filmmaker in the last couple of years. And so it was something that we knew there would be an audience of people that would find this as an interesting take and trying to do sort of a Lynchian send up that also includes puppets. (laughs) Uh, We just thought would be fun. Mm -hmm. And having that sort of hook going into it, I think, was important because it did end up getting picked up by some really large news outlets. And I don't think that that would have happened if it didn't have, basically you have to give people something to want to write about. And in that video, we gave a lot of people something that they wanted to write about. Mm -hmm. So this would, this would be, you know, beyond the band's fans, but people who are also thinking about how the imagery is connected to what they're doing musically and that sort of thing. Exactly. And, And, you know, the thing is that, because you have the radiator lady, you have the the red curtain, yeah, uh, the the performance from Blue Velvet, yeah, and then we have uh, Rebecca Del Rio from uh, Mulholland Drive. Uh, so it's a big it's it's a big mix, and um, yeah, doing the Julie Cruz stuff from Twin Peaks was fun. Um, we have a little bit of Chevron flooring in there. <laughs> can't can't do can't, much yeah, without can't it. Can't avoid it too much, but. Um, the new video is a little different in that the song itself has um, themes that are somewhat prevalent in the media today anyway. So we don't have to necessarily add those things in, but knowing that it probably will get interest from some people just because of the topic, it puts a little bit more responsibility on our shoulders to tell whatever narrative we're going to tell in a responsible way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also sort of the marketability aspect of it that, you know, we need to focus on. So this was a little bit of a backwards, um, shoot to the last one. Mm-hmm. I was in, in, interested, you were talking earlier also about how it's kind of a creative fusion in some ways between what they're trying to do as a band and what you're trying to do as a filmmaker to sort of create that conversation across a different medium. Yep. Which I think has like lots of interesting potential of, uh, of sort of like an amplified creativity, which I think is really interesting. I was in a conversation with someone last week about Rob Zombie doing Billy Idol videos okay. <laughs> because yeah. it's yeah, it's so Rob Zombie, right? I mean, you can kind of pick it out and it's right on that. The person was actually trying to make the argument that what he was doing was really transgressive. And I'm not sure hmm. if that's the case because that's a very odd boundary to kind of like start waltzing across because then you start annoying people, right? You start alienating yeah. them and yeah, that's kind of a scary thing. So, um, so let's, can we talk a little bit about your, uh, you have a passion for uh, you called you were calling them industrial films. Yes, I've taken to calling them ephemeral films. I don't know if that's because it's a more pretentious word or <laughs> or well, identifies the category. It's but. interesting because I don't know if we've really um, defined what constitutes an industrial film or whether that is differentiated from an educational film or a corporate film. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of roll all of those into the term industrial film, Mm -hmm. but sort of, you know, made for purpose short films typically Mm -hmm. um, that have a specific tailored audience that they're trying to teach something, Mm -hmm. whether that is. 
how awesome springs are or <laughs> why to study industrial arts. Yeah, I, I think for the sake of, of the audience, if you're having a hankering to consume a bunch of them, there's a an online site called the Internet Archive, which is a good place to go and plunge in. And uh, you can kind of, it, it's it's actually, I think it's a very important website for lots of reasons, but it becomes this cultural repository of like what it is we thought we were, you know, 50 years ago. Right. And how we were going to try to teach each other to be better. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> or something like that. So what what is it that got you interested in this? Um, what got me interested in industrial films as a topic um, for a documentary is that I love the film Carnival of Souls. And uh, I knew for a long time that the director of Carnival of Souls was also an industrial film director at a company called Centron in Lawrence, Kansas. And uh, Centron was a huge hub of industrial filmmaking from the late 40s into the early 80s. And uh, I, I had seen some of the Centron films on Mystery Science Theater. Um, I think I had seen a couple that Herc had done. Um, and I was considering doing a project about Carnival of Souls, and I just looked around, and there's really only one person associated with the production who's still alive, and uh, some of the locations that are iconic have been torn down, and there just wasn't the kind of reference material. But when I started, like you know, trying to figure out more about Herc, um, I came across a quote or a, or an anecdote. Uh, I can't remember now what the source was, that basically he was upset towards the end of his life that people kept asking him only about Carnival of Souls because he considered his life's work to be the industrial films and no one really seemed to care about mm. that. And I thought that was really fascinating. <laughs> so I was sort of like, you know, why does nobody care about this um, when this seems to be so pivotal in American culture that, you know, for decades, TV shows throw in like little industrial film scenes of like kids in a classroom watching a newsreel or mm -hmm. something. And we get immediately what that is because it's so ubiquitous in American culture. But uh, there's been very little um, research or exploration of those films and how they were important. There's a book uh, called Mental Hygiene. And as far as I know, that's like the most comprehensive look into those films. Uh, but it's a little bit harder when it's just text, you know. I think that you want to see an exploration of that visually because that's how those films were consumed. Um, and I was at South by Southwest in 2015, and uh, I was at the premiere of this film called um, Brand a Second Coming, uh, directed by Andy Timoner. And uh, she had shot part of the film on the Bolex, which is why I was there. And I was just talking to some of her team outside the theater. And uh, I was just introducing myself. She had some, like, you know, younger kids just out of college that had been like assistant editors on there and I was talking to one of them Michael and I was like you know so what's your deal and he's like oh I just graduated from University of Kansas Film School I'm like in Lawrence he's like yeah I'm like what do you know about Centron he's like what are you talking about 
And it's like your film school used to be <laughs> a production company that produced hundreds of films. And he had no idea because it's not something that the school ever really talked about. It was something that, you know, Centron closed in the 80s. Uh, they donated the building or sold it to the university. It became their film school. Um, I believe the library of their films was sold to some other industrial company somewhere. So I don't know what vestiges of the actual company remained. Some of the people who worked at the production company ended up being professors. But um, it just wasn't really spoken of. And it was so strange to me that you could be living in that town, going to college in the very building where all these films were shot, and not know that for decades there is a strong and vibrant um, film industry, and you didn't know about mm. it. Like that was so crazy to me. We're not I mean, we're not really good as a culture at kind of accounting for our media history. It no, just we're is not. not. And it's really kind of too bad. I was thinking, um, excuse me, <clears throat> about um, the you know because uh, I was doing some work on George Romero recently, and he was actually involved in an early version of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and was supposed like which to see is that kind version. of amazing and he was he was actually trying to get the woman who was in the show to play Barbara and they said no huh. <laughs> they said no you're not going to do that so but I, I thought that was just kind of an interesting thing but he'd also come from a commercial background and you know leading up to Night of Living Dead and so yeah I mean for, for me it really comes down to we talk a lot about how film influences American culture um but it's not just Hollywood film. It's this other silent film industry that in different ways we are subjected to every day. I mean, probably the closest that we have right now is probably vlogs or ads, um, just sort of more user-generated like tutorial content um, or branded content. Um, but for decades it was, you don't want to talk to your kids about family planning, put on this Disney short. Right. <laughs> There's still, there was a remnant, and we looked at it in a class recently, of a video that's on YouTube about respecting intellectual property. Hmm. And it's a little animated thing. And it's kind of terrible. I mean, it's kind of like, it doesn't clarify the issues at all. It's just sort of like a, like a shaking your finger or like, you know, an animated character kind of telling you. But I mean, for as far along as we are, it just seemed very kind of uninformed by what you could do with that and a sort of more, it, it seemed to be directed at very, very young people. It was very weird. But... Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of these different companies and they made different types of ads. Disney made a ton of them. A lot of those are no longer available. They try to also uh, remove them from YouTube whenever someone uploads one, mm -hmm. but it's like whack-a-mole, right? As soon as one goes away, another one comes up. Um, but I think even a company like that doesn't really know how to market or exploit that part of the company's history. And I think that, you know, if they released a compilation of those, which who knows, maybe they have and I just didn't don't know about it, totally possible. But I mean, if Disney released like a, an industrial film uh -huh. catalog on like a Blu-ray, I think a lot of people would be interested in that. Yeah, they, well, there were, I mean, there were a bunch of us who were subjected to some of their, like uh, Our Mr. Son was the one that 
was I ended up seeing like half a dozen times over time, a very long time. I think the closest they got, I think that they, because they were doing those silver box sets, I think, for a while. And I think there was one that had some of the nature films that they were doing in the 50s in it. But I don't know if they've yeah. ever done anything with the other industrial films. I mean, it, it's really interesting to me because even beyond industrials, like there is a rich history of shorts in our country. And a lot of those are like very artistically interesting and in some cases important but like there isn't really a venue for seeing them. Like I remember uh, when I went to the Guillermo del Toro exhibit when it was touring in LA, um, he had a lot of artwork and stuff that was close to my heart and uh, they were playing uh, a copy of the Telltale Heart animated film that was Oscar nominated. I oh, yeah. can't remember whether it won or not, but it's narrated by James Mason. And like, this is a very cool little short. Um, but where does it live? Mm-hmm. And I think about, I think it might have been through PBS, but as a kid, my parents had subscribed to some kind of um, vid- like VHS subscription of short animated films. And so it was some company, which either it was PBS licensing it or in partnership with them through some other company, there would be about like five shorts per VHS tape and you know one would come every month. And I think at some point my parents were like, we have 30 of these, stop. Um, <laughs> and many of those films, as an adult, I have tried to look for and I can maybe find them on IMDb, but then you're like, oh, that film that made you uncomfortable as a child, that's like some weird Polish, you know, animated film from 1982. Uh-huh. Good luck finding yeah, that. Yeah, There was one that I saw that was a, it was a short film set in the Civil War. And um, it was it was a it was a film of a battle, a particularly bad battle. I can't Mississauga, I think maybe or something like that. And it was a very surreal film where you saw the battle, and then all the people who were it was in black and white. All the people who were killed were kind of crawling along the ground. Um, and so it had this kind of really weird, I, I think, I, and I was far too young to be watching this, you know, the teacher who showed it thought, oh, here's a way to learn about the Civil War. Oh, and the fact that people don't really die and that people can smile at their kids after they're dead, which I think was the punchline of the whole film. Yeah. And I, I've tried to look for that since and haven't, haven't had much success in tracking it down, you know, uh, it, 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 I'm sure it'll turn up eventually because I don't think these things sort of disappear, but we're just not, uh, Again, not really good as a culture at organizing them in a way that, you know, and they were definitely worth studying and thinking about. All of the industrial films, the way that they were suggesting we think about, you know, what's important, what are the values, how do you how do you get people, and I always read them, I read a lot of them as these kind of lessons in conformity. How do you get people to sort of, you know, kind of follow expectations and things like that? And they always had educational consultants. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. They Well, that's what makes them feel official. It's like, um, it, it reminds me of, like, when you would have exploitation films during the code era, a lot of times in, in like a reefer madness situation, you would have to like strongly denounce or have some kind of authority figure write their name at the bottom of some kind of warning statement at the beginning that sort of uh, tells you that what's being depicted is wrong and terrible. And this person of authority signs off that it's terrible, but you're going to watch it 
so that you know how to watch out for terrible things. <laughs> totally yeah. not because it's exploitation yeah, of some there, kind. There, one, that a, one of the graduate students that I'm working with found, um, and, and the way that the narration was written was always entertaining, but this was one that basically it identified homosexuality as a mental illness, and, and it was just the whole discussion of it was so uh, completely out of date, so completely homophobic, and you know, kind of watching it now, it's just kind of like, Wow, this was being set out to get people to think about, you know, homosexuality, pornography, communism, all these things, and associate them with each other as all of this creepy stuff that if we're not careful, like comic books and stuff like that, they're going to completely destroy American youth. And Yeah, and, and I think that's what is actually really fascinating about industrials, too, is that they are in their very nature, bought and paid for by somebody in a very clear on the nose way you know like like a political ad there's usually a like paid for by the such and such on there and um you know unlike maybe some other media sometimes like where you don't really know who owns it or what their agenda is or what the deal is like with industrial films you know exactly you know who because you see Texaco, they are. right yeah <laughs> everything's kind of branded and and there's a lot of product placement inside of them too yeah well they 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 are specifically selling you something now sometimes it's weird as you're like okay this is an industrial film about truck farming like <laughs> i am not going to go out and hire a truck farmer so i don't really know who the audience of the industrial is for like some kind of wholesaler or grocery store or i don't know um so sometimes it can be weird in that context if you're not the audience like trying to figure out what that audience even mm -hmm. was what was your you were mentioning your favorite kind of really off the wall one earlier today uh well i think the the two weirdest ones i mean uh, Mr. Science Theater is very excellent for like picking out yeah. weird ones because there are many that are just not weird. They're just inf informational based mm -hmm. films. Um, but I love Mr. Be Natural, <laughs> which is uh, trying to get kids into like high school band and playing musical instruments through as what you called it, like a an androgynously sexed Peter Pan character. <laughs> That's a very weird. But like also... A uh, case of spring fever, which is about like if springs didn't exist, all of these technologies wouldn't be able to expect, you know, exist. And it's this sort of it's a wonderful life, except with coily oh, instead I of Clarence. That now. Because yeah, because then somebody like they go to pick up a phone to make a phone call, and they're nope, like, no nope, springs, <laughs> no springs, no telephones, no springs, no telephones. Yeah, I exactly. Remember that now, yeah. Um, and you just have to be like, okay, I get the concept that you're going for. But, like, why would this terrifying Peter Pan woman actually convince me to join the band? Uh -huh. Like, one of the reasons it's so funny to watch on Mystery Science Theater is you're like, this is terrifying. Why would anyone be convinced <laughs> by this? What, there, there are also some where if you actually go all the way through the storyline to the conclusion and then the, it fades back up and there's discussion questions. Yeah. Which is fantastic, yeah. right? <laughs> So you don't. So in case you missed the point, here's something to redirect you back to yep. what you're supposed to understand about them. Yep. Well, it's been really good to talk to you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for coming in. And I look forward to seeing this documentary someday. Yeah, I, I'm I, hoping I can get it moving before the end of the year. It's just so heavily research-based. Mm -hmm. And I have to get in touch with a lot of archivists and see what is available to be digitized, see if I can track down negatives if they exist of this material which i mean 
given the way most industrials are treated, probably doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but at least I need to know for sure. Mm -hmm. It's actually, there's a note about that, about home media too. All the stuff that people shot, that's actually, again, it's like cultural history. Yeah. So don't destroy it, friends. Yeah. <laughs> it's very well, important. Well, for example, the, the Academy told me they have industrials. They just don't ever like look at them or do anything with them. So hopefully they have like at least a list somewhere uh -huh. or like a, a Centron card in a card catalog somewhere <laughs> that would be that would be helpful because without a mystery science theater 3000 or something similar an industrial i know no, well channel. now that it's not out on netflix i will say the one thing missing from the netflix version is the shorts yeah yeah well maybe they'll get they're, back they're to the, the warm-up act yeah well Al Schneider, thank you for coming in and talking to us all good thanks for having me 